0: It's February 7th. I'm Brian Dean Wright, former CIA operations officer, and this is The Wright Report. Hey, good day to you, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Wright Report, your daily news podcast. I've got three briefs for you this morning that are shaping America and the world. First up, the U.S. Supreme Court is going to have a busy next few days. They are hearing two appeals about Donald Trump. I'll tell you about those shortly. Second, America is combusting over the issue of illegal aliens this morning, with both the U.S. House and Senate pretty riled up and votes going down. I'll cover the latest out of each chamber in just a bit. Third, we go around the world this morning for a series of quick updates from El Salvador, Israel, the Red Sea, and Libya, where we talk about a mystery on the Mediterranean. Later, a listener question today about Tucker Carlson. He is interviewing Russia's President Vladimir Putin, and that is making some heads pop all around the country. That is why I will answer Kathy's question today about Tucker in about 25 minutes, give or take. But first, let's get to our top stories of the morning. The U.S. Supreme Court is going to earn their paycheck over the next few days. They are set to hear two appeals about Donald Trump. The first is slated for tomorrow when the court hears oral arguments about whether Mr. Trump can be disqualified from the ballot either this spring or next fall for the presidency. Democrat-run states like Maine and Colorado argue that he should be disqualified. They cite the 14th Amendment and its uh, insurrection clause comparing that to Mr. Trump's actions during the January 6th protest at the U.S. Capitol. The Supreme Court is expected to rule in Trump's favor, at least in this particular case, in no small part because they have already dismissed other efforts that involve private citizens using the same legal arguments as these states are trying to use as well. But nevertheless, we could be surprised. The court will hear arguments tomorrow with a ruling expected within probably two weeks. More to come on that. The second case that the court will hear is quite different mr trump's legal team is set to appeal to the court by no later than monday about a case that revolves around these next two legal questions first can a former u.s president be charged with alleged crimes that were committed during their time in office but they were committed while in the course of their duties or instead do do presidents have official immunity So in this case, we're talking about what President Trump did or did not do in the run up to the January 6th protest at the Capitol, including his famous speech on the National Mall that day. The, The second legal question is this. Can a former president be charged for alleged crimes when the House and the Senate considered those crimes, but they failed to impeach and remove the president for those said crimes? Again, in this case, the House did impeach or charge Mr. Trump for his role in those January 6th protests, but the U.S. Senate acquitted him. It is now these two legal questions that have to be resolved. For what it's worth, Mr. Trump claims that he, like all presidents, has immunity from prosecution because whatever you think of that infamous day in January, Mr. Trump's actions and speeches were official protected acts. And he argues that if he loses his presidential immunity, all presidents, both past and future, will face the possibility of prosecution from, say, a partisan lawyer or partisan judge. For example, former President Barack Obama could still be prosecuted by a conservative prosecutor for war crimes or murder because he ordered some drone strikes during his presidency that killed innocent civilians. And for the record, Mr. Obama has admitted that, yes, he did do that. Next, Mr. Trump's team also makes the argument that it would be double jeopardy for him to face prosecution again over his January 6th role because the House and the Senate already considered this alleged crime and they acquitted him. Well, those are his arguments. And yesterday, the Districts of Columbia's Circuit Court of Appeals ruled on those arguments and they said that Trump's beliefs were flawed and that he can be charged I should tell you that the D.C.'s Circuit Court of Appeals is dominated by judges either appointed by President Obama or Democrats. But that aside, it was bad news for Mr. Trump, but very good news for a man named Jack Smith. He is a special prosecutor appointed by Mr. Biden and his attorney general to investigate and charge Mr. Trump for his role in the January 6th protests, especially their impact on the transfer of power to Mr. Biden. And that is precisely what Mr. Smith is doing. He is aggressively pursuing charges against Mr. Trump, but he can't proceed until this issue of immunity and double jeopardy are ultimately solved by the courts. And with this ruling yesterday from this Democrat-dominated D.C. court, it gets him one step closer to moving his case forward. Mr. Trump has until Monday to appeal directly to the Supreme Court, and legal analysts largely expect that he will do so. All right, so what does all of this mean, and why should we care? Well, let's talk about that. Let me pivot now from facts and data to my analysis and opinion. Stepping back, folks, let's put these prosecutions into, uh, well, political context. Polling shows that as of this moment, Joe Biden is wildly unpopular, and he will lose the presidency next November, unless Mr. Trump is found guilty of a crime. And of course, Democrats know this, and that includes Democrats at Biden's Department of Justice, at that uh, Democrat-dominated court in D.C., or also amongst the juries in Washington, D.C. that are overwhelmingly Democrats, upwards of 90-plus percent. From my optic, that helps explain this particular case against Trump and this particular special counsel, Mr. Jack Smith. This guy needs court proceedings underway soonest, and a trial and a conviction by November. That is the path to a Biden victory. To be fair, Democrats disagree with my analysis. They say that this Jack Smith and this court in D.C., they're only following the law and that justice is blind. In fact, the court in D.C. said pretty much that exact same thing yesterday when they were responding to a Trump claim that he or any president might someday be targeted by, say, a partisan prosecutor once they left office. In fact, here's the quote. Quote, the risk of harassing prosecutions of former presidents are unlikely, an allegation unsupported by history, end quote. Which, ladies and gentlemen, that has got to be one of the biggest piles of baloney ever put on paper by a court. And I want to give you just one example of this. Jack Smith, he himself has already been rebuked by the Supreme Court in another case for his unfair targeting of a Republican governor, uh, this time out of the state of Virginia, And for folks unaware of this case, the Supreme Court ruled eight to zero that Mr. uh, Smith's conduct was biased and egregiously unfair. Uh, Quote, the uncontrolled power of criminal prosecutors is a threat to our separation of powers. End quote. They said this, of course, about Mr. Smith. So I think we can fairly and justly ignore the uh, the very silly belief that the courts put out yesterday that, that they are blind to politics. It is just absurd on the face of it. And I think it tells you everything that you need to know about this D.C. court. But back to the main point. The goal of all of these players, whether that be Mr. Jack Smith to the Biden Department of Justice or this leftist court in D.C. and their D.C. juries, All of them are focused on one thing, and that is to find Donald Trump guilty of a crime, put him in jail, and thus secure the presidency for Mr. Biden. Well, is that wrong? You bet it is. Is it dangerous? Absolutely. But is that how politics works? Yep. And that is why it is often called lawfare instead of warfare. And it is nasty business. Regardless, I will be watching how this plays out tomorrow through early next week. I expect a lot of twists and turns and some serious legal drama, and I'll keep you posted. Next up this morning, we stay in Washington, D.C. for an update on the raging debate over illegal aliens. We start first in the U.S. House of Representatives, where Joe Biden's Homeland Security Secretary, Mr. Alejandro Mayorkas, narrowly escaped impeachment yesterday by just a whisker. Three Republicans joined all Democrats in the House in defeating the effort to hold him to account for the fallen border or migrant invasion. This group called the impeachment effort a a sham, a partisan witch hunt, or simply lacking in evidence. For what it's worth, the three Republicans included Colorado's Ken Buck, Wisconsin's Mike Gallagher, and California's Tom McClintock. I will keep you posted on this because the charges might be refiled next week, But I'll tell you in the meantime, what I'm looking for is why House Speaker Mike Johnson didn't first count the votes before he put this very embarrassing outcome out for the world to see, at least embarrassing for Republicans. More to come on that. Meanwhile, in the U.S. Senate, we might see a vote later today over the controversial border bill. To refresh our memories on this, the 370 pages of this bill's text was released late Sunday night. And it is now being rushed into a vote as early as today. It's gotten a lot of support from mostly Democrats in the Senate. Plus, the White House is quite excited about it, too. But not many Republicans, including Kentucky's Republican Senator, Mr. Mitch McConnell. He said yesterday that the bill has no chance of passing through his Republican conference, which is actually quite remarkable because it was he who pushed his fellow Republican Senator, Mr. James Lankford of Oklahoma, to help draft it. That doesn't matter, not at this point anyway, because over the past 48 hours or so, opposition to this bill was absolutely ferocious. More on that in just a moment. But the point is, uh, Senator Lankford at first was quite defensive of his bill. He said that his fellow Republicans should just calm down, in in essence. But now he too is saying that his bill has no chance of passage. In fact, he's going to vote against it as well, his own bill. Well, what a mess, and that is creating an opening for the White House this morning to blast Republicans for, as they say, open borders. Mr. Biden said yesterday in a press conference that he really wants to close the border with Mexico, but Republicans clearly don't want to. He said that the failure of this Senate bill only proves his point. Critics, as you would imagine, contest that assessment, saying that Biden is gaslighting the country and he could shut down the border today if he wanted to. We covered why that is true back on January 29th. So that's the politics of the bill this morning, which takes us away from faction data to analysis and opinion. And I think it's important for us to do a little bit more digging on this bill, even though it is likely dead, because I think that there is still a very valuable lesson here. And here's the upshot. The bill was written by politicians who were thinking like politicians. It was not written by folks who were thinking like, say, an illegal alien or a cartel member. And that's important. So let's do that. Let's conduct a thought experiment this morning, imagining that we are illegal aliens or a cartel member trafficking those illegals. And let's think about how we might take advantage of this Senate bill or bills like it that don't take into account how things are actually going on on the ground. So let's start with this. If we were illegals or cartel members, we would absolutely be looking for loopholes. A couple of reasons for that. First and foremost, If we were illegal migrants, we would know that 75% of us do not qualify as asylum seekers. That is, uh, is at least based on some polling from the LA Times and KFF or Kaiser Family Foundation. Instead, we're coming to America for jobs or money. So we need to lie about asylum to get in. Second, we know the cartels are looking for loopholes because they are involved in human trafficking and they really want to get those illegal aliens in with this next incentive They collect about 13 billion dollars each year from trafficking illegal aliens. So keeping those motivations in mind, let's talk about just three of the many ways that we as either illegal migrants or as uh, cartel members might work to defeat this Senate bill by exploiting some loopholes. First, we know that this Senate bill calls for new asylum rules that are supposedly tougher they're based on a legal theory known as reasonable possibility of persecution. Basically, that just means that we as illegal migrants have to talk our way through a story that demonstrates that we are going to face future persecution based on our race, religion, nationality, membership, and a particular social group or political opinion. And this higher standard is not a problem. Not if you prepare and illegal migrants do We know that migrant activist groups help coach illegal aliens on how to come up with proper stories that get them through these asylum processes. We also know that cartels do this exact same thing, certainly motivated with $13 billion of profit to be had. In other words, folks, we can assume that leftist activist groups or cartels will be working hard and hand-in-hand to come up with stories or fake evidence to help illegals create the stories of reasonable possibility of persecution. Second... Even if our uh, asylum stories are a little bit clunky, the new Senate law allows for an immigration officer to provide exemptions to the rule depending on the story. Or as the law says, quote, the totality of a migrant's circumstances, end quote. That set of circumstances includes, but is not limited to, public safety, humanitarian interests, or the migrant is a victim of a severe form of human trafficking. And those exemptions create a lot of wiggle room. For instance, what precisely is a humanitarian interest or a severe form of human trafficking? And to be fair for folks unaware, there are some rules and laws about that trafficking part, which focuses on forced labor or sex trafficking. But here's the loophole. There is already a culture of sexual assault and rape. It's very common amongst migrants, usually committed by cartel members, but sometimes by fellow migrants to the point, upwards of eighty percent of women are assaulted as they make their way to the US border. But even if they're not, this new law perversely offers a new challenge to some industrious cartel traffickers. They can either help create stories of severe trafficking, or actually put these migrants through some sort of severe forms of trafficking to help ensure that the illegals actually get in. And I don't want to be too graphic about this. I've spoken to some folks on the border about it, but What we're talking about is we've got a number of cartels that have very evil tendencies who would then be incentivized to ramp up sex trafficking to keep up their multi-billion dollar business of moving humans. So based on that, it would make a horrific situation on our southern border even worse, especially for the women who tried to take that journey north. Third and finally, The Senate bill also has a carve out for children. In fact, they get lawyers paid for by you, the taxpayers, to help them get into the country. But here's the challenge. How do you prove that an illegal alien is actually underage? What if they have uh, no birth certificate, no ID? Or what if they just lie about their age? Because as folks out there who've worked the border, they do, and they will. In fact, most illegal aliens are young men, either in their late teens or early 20s. So with this new Senate loophole, it incentivizes these guys to create stories to be a few years younger. And again, if that seems improbable, outlandish, it's not. It happens all the time. In fact, it happens all around the world. For example, countries like Italy, they use x-rays to scan bones of the, the illegal migrants who come across the Mediterranean from Africa to try to figure out the actual age of these migrants because they lie about it all the time. So here's the point. If you and I were an illegal migrant this morning and we were trying to get into this country and we looked a little bit young, well, we now have a new loophole that we can exploit. And that takes us back to the main point of my analysis and opinion. This Senate bill is trying to create rules and procedures that they define from comfy offices and couches in the Capitol. It was not drafted. This bill was not drafted while thinking about the on the ground realities about how illegals or cartel members will be laser focused on how to defeat these rules and their procedures. And that, I think, is the lesson for us this morning, even if this Senate bill is dead. We have to look at this stuff as an enemy would because they're going to. And if we don't, our country will pay the price. With that, my friends, let's take our first break of the morning. For subscribers listening at rightreport.substack.com and enjoying those transcripts with the sources, thank you. It is you and your financial support that are keeping this podcast alive. Meanwhile, for my other loyal listeners, I thank you as well. And I encourage you to do your part this morning and support the companies that support me. You will hear about them shortly. We'll be right back. Who's ready for a good night's sleep? Well, if that's you, you need to do what I did. Get yourself a ghost bed. Yeah, it's the company that I think makes the finest mattresses in all of America. And you know it's true because I own one. I have the Lux model, which is designed to help people like me who sleep just a little bit hot. But they've got other models as well. There is the classic plus a new massage bed. And that's fun, except for the people who live downstairs. But whatever your model, get one of these things. The mattresses from the folks at ghost bed are built with high quality materials and fine craftsmanship. And when you get into one of these ghost beds, you feel both the material, the craftsmanship. And I tell you, here's some great news. This bed comes right to your doorstep. And if that makes you a little bit nervous about buying something without trying it, I get it. I felt the same way, but don't worry. They have a 101 day trial period, plus free shipping and returns. So folks, let GhostBed give you the sleep that you deserve, and you're going to get 50% off when you do. So go to GhostBed.com right write, that's W-R-I-G-H-T, and 50% off will be yours. But you got to use that website, GhostBed.com right write, and by golly, get ready, because when that bed arrives, you are going to be off to a great night's sleep, I guarantee it. If you start your mornings with a cup of coffee and the right report, well, that coffee has got to come from Wacker Coffee Company. I first told you about this great small batch roaster back in August. And for listeners who are lucky enough to get one of their six roasts, you know that your taste buds have never been the same. And that's because the roaster is a former U.S. Marine who is very serious about his coffee. In fact, his bestseller called Red Tape is a mix of Guatemalan, Costa Rican, and a honey processed Nicaraguan bean. As he wonderfully describes it, red tape has notes of dark chocolate, almond, and cocoa rice krispies. And that is not spin. I'm telling you, Wacker Coffee Company gives you a chance to really taste coffee, not just drink it. And trust me on that. My family and I are huge fans. So start your mornings by going to wackercoffeeco.com. That's W. A-C-K-E-R, WackerCoffeeCo.com, and for paid subscribers on Substack, you get some extra value this morning. Use the promo code that you will see in those daily emails that I send you, and you will get 10% off your order. But either way, go to WackerCoffeeCo.com, and my friends, you will taste your morning coffee for the very first time, I guarantee it. Welcome back to The Right Report. Let's continue with our news this morning with a few quick stops around the world. We begin in El Salvador, where President Bukele just won a landslide re-election. And that is certainly important for us. As listeners will recall, illegal migration from El Salvador to the U.S. is way down. All because of Mr. Bukele, and he has led this major crackdown on gangs and cartels into his country. And that is why people are staying put. Critics point out this morning that innocent people have been swept up in uh, Mr. Bukele's mass arrests. Many of the folks uh, tossed in the clink have been denied basic rights, like uh, getting lawyers or having fair trials. There's also an allegation this morning that Mr. Bukele has been secretly cooperating with some gang leaders and their cartel friends, allowing a little bit of crime, just not too much. But no matter that, the people of El Salvador absolutely love this man, and really for one big reason... Crime rights, especially murder, they have dropped to historic lows and that has earned Mr. Bukele very high approval numbers of around 90 percent and that has helped him secure another term as president. For what it's worth, the U.S. government managed a pretty limp response yesterday. of Congratulations. The Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, did offer him some kudos, but very quickly he said that the White House would be watching very closely regarding the issues of corruption, fair trials, and human rights. Just one quick piece of analysis and opinion before we move on. El Salvador continues to be a very fascinating laboratory. Mr. Bukele has, in fact, taken or violated constitutional rights. It's true, but in exchange, he's given the people of his country far lower crime rates and a slowly improving economy. So that is why I think that this uh, El Salvador is a very interesting laboratory with implications for us here in the United States if this experiment goes sideways. Next up, a quick stop for us in Israel this morning where Israeli defense forces claim that they have accessed most of the tunnel networks that were built or used by Hamas terrorists both in the north of Gaza Strip and increasingly in the central part of Gaza Strip. IDF officials say that senior Hamas leaders are likely in the area of Khan Yunus and they are on the move south with Israeli hostages using them as human shields. To that end of the 132 known hostages, we have new estimates this morning that only 80 are alive. The remaining 50 have been likely killed, but their bodies have been kept by the Palestinian terror group. Rescuing those hostages or retrieving their bodies remains a distant goal this morning. But in the meantime, the Israelis will continue to push further south into the city of Rafah, which sits along the border with Egypt. They plan to flood or otherwise block the tunnel networks that lead out of Rafah and into the Egyptian territory nearby, under and through what is called the Philadelphia Corridor. You may remember that I briefed you on that special strip of land back on January 24th. One other quick update regarding Israel. It's related to the brief that I gave you back on December 19th about a possible war between Israel and Hezbollah forces in the country of Lebanon. To refresh our memories, there were growing concerns back in December about the escalating fight between those two and the strong possibility of an all-out war. Axios News is reporting that diplomatic efforts have cooled some of the tensions between those two, but the situation remains very precarious. I'll keep you posted. Third, I've got updates for you about attacks against U.S. forces in the Middle East, along with attacks against ships in the Red Sea. The upshot is, folks, attacks against both continue as of this morning. The Houthi rebel group announced yesterday that despite the missile barrage over the weekend by the Biden White House, they still launched missiles at two ships yesterday in the Red Sea. One was carrying U.S. coal to India. The other was full of consumer goods. Both ships were struck and damaged, although, thank God, no crew were killed. We've also got to talk about another attack on U.S. forces this morning. The mission support site Green Village was hit with a suicide drone. Again, thank God no one was injured or killed, but that will likely change. NBC News reports that the Iranians have restarted their supply of weaponry to those terror groups throughout the Middle East. And that will come as a very surprising or unhappy news, at least, to the White House. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said on Sunday that the U.S. strikes over the weekend had worked, that the Iranians had been notably degraded in their ability to arm these various proxy groups. But obviously, that was not true. Biden's team has failed in their mission, as folks like me and others have long warned would happen. Regardless, I'll keep you posted. Finally, this morning a story of mystery and intrigue out of the country of Libya. And for this one, you might want to grab your maps, whether that be on your phones or computers or in your minds. And come with me this morning to the Mediterranean coast, to the country of Libya, very close to the border with Egypt. You will see a city called Tobruk. It is a town with a very long and very interesting history, having been under the control of the Greeks long, long ago, then the Romans, and then in the 1940s, There was a massive tug of war between the Axis and Allied powers of World War II. And part of the reason for this fight in this little town was this. Tobruk has a natural deep water port. Libya's only natural harbor, actually. Seventy years later, Libya descended into a civil war. The country then split between the West and the East. A man named Khalifa Haftar took charge in the East, which, by the way, he is a very colorful character, a former CIA asset, allegedly. But he is no longer on the books. He's gone rogue, doing as he pleases. And that is despite the fact that CIA Director William Burns traveled to Libya to speak with him last summer to talk some sense into him, allegedly. Well, anyway, that takes us to the news. Mr. Hoftar and his son named Saddam are now in advanced talks with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Moscow apparently hopes that Mr. Hoftar will consider allowing them to park some Russian nuclear-armed submarines at Tobruk. If so, that would give Mr. Putin greater influence over the Mediterranean Sea, and that would make a lot of European governments pretty anxious, especially in Italy. Russia's deputy defense minister has visited Mr. Hoftar at least four times since August, trying to nail down the use of this port. Part of the negotiations is apparently what Russians might give to Mr. Hoftar in return for this use of the port. In the mix of the conversation are the 800 or so Russian personnel that are already in eastern Libya, providing some air defense system support against uh, allegedly some U.S. drones that might be flying overhead. So that, ladies and gentlemen, is why Tobruk is on my radar this morning. And now it's on yours, too. With that, ladies and gentlemen, we conclude this morning's episode of The Right Report. But I've got one more thing before I let you go. We'll be right back. Folks, back on January 9th, we talked about the big fight with Russia and how that could badly affect the US dollar and you. Well, if you're looking for ways to diversify your investments, boy, consider physical gold and silver and consider American Hartford gold as you do. They are the precious metal dealer that I use and trust. And when you give them a call, they will explain how to protect not only your savings accounts, but also your retirement accounts, all by purchasing gold and silver. Plus, they will explain their buyback commitment, which is rock solid. And here's some more good news. Feel very comfortable using American Heart for gold as they have a five-star rating from thousands of reviews, plus an A-plus ranking from the Better Business Bureau. So here's how you do it either give them a call at 866-353-2694. Again, that is 866-353-2694. Or you can just text them. Text right to 65532. And gosh, that's easy. Again, 65532. And just text them my last name. And when you do, listen to this. They will give you up to $5,000 of free silver on your very first order, depending on your total purchase. So again, either give them a call at 866-353-2694 or text my last name right to 65532. And as you do, my friends, make sure that you remember that January brief about the currency wars, because that is why we want to consider physical gold, my friends, and silver with American Hartford Gold. Welcome back to The Right Report with one more thing before I let you go. It's a listener question today sent to us from one of my paid subscribers at rightreport.substack.com. Kathy in the lovely city of Sarasota, Florida wrote in, Brian, what do you think about Tucker Carlson? He's interviewing Vladimir Putin. I'm torn because on one hand, I don't want a dictator to get airtime. But on the other hand, it's probably important for us to hear what this guy has to say. And do you think that Tucker is wrong for doing this? Well, Kathy, I I really appreciate your question and your paid subscription, too, by the way. It helps me keep the lights on. So for folks who missed this developing story yesterday, the former Fox News host, Tucker Carlson, announced that he was, in fact, interviewing the Russian president. Well, after he announced that, you would uh, probably imagine correctly that outrage ensued. Liberals on uh, outlets like MSNBC, such as Jen Psaki, said that Tucker Carlson is a right wing uh, conspiracy peddler. CNN's liberal journalist named Christian Anampur complained that she'd been trying to get this interview too, but failed. And that wasn't fair. Meanwhile, we have the satirical website called Babylon Bee. They announced this and I love it. Tucker Carlson was apparently seen riding a bear with a shirtless Vladimir Putin, both were drinking vodka. So that's fun. So I think that that covers the range of reactions yesterday, Kathy. And uh, here's what I'd say. First, if People out there are angry that Tucker is meeting and interviewing with this uh, dictator uh, just on principle. Well, goodness gracious, wait until people hear what the CIA does every day, because that's kind of what the CIA does. Meet with really dirty, nasty, gross people. And for what it's worth, the State Department does this too. The only difference is that the diplomats meet uh, the gross people in very fancy hotels or resorts. And the intel guys like me, we go to dive bars or other places that shall not be named Second, journalists and commentators have been meeting with Putin for years and in recent years, too. That includes NBC News. They met with Putin just two years ago, I think. So I'm not really sure why this interview gets a lot of special outrage, except for this next fact. Tucker has been accused of being pro-Kremlin. So that is because Tucker has said, if I can paraphrase a, a few things, First, he said that the West actually provoked Putin into invading Ukraine because NATO expanded. Second, Tucker has made the argument that Ukraine's president, Vladimir Zelensky, is terribly corrupt and just a stooge of the West. Finally, Tucker has argued that we should stop supporting Ukraine and instead bring home our troops and our money and our special operators from both Ukraine and the region. And it is true that all three of those things are quite helpful to Putin. They match his rhetoric or war propaganda. But there's a difference, I think, between Tucker being an agent of the Kremlin and spreading propaganda versus someone who earnestly believes what they say, irrespective of whether that actually helps an adversary. And I think that that is precisely what's happening here. And that is Tucker's right to do. Having said that, I think, I hope, That uh, Tucker Carlson will push Mr. Putin on a few things. First, I hope that he pushes him on what a peace deal might look like with Ukraine. Second, I, I hope he pushes Putin on the fear that Moscow will eventually invade Poland, the Baltics and beyond. And that's pretty darn important to press Mr. Putin on. Finally, I would love to see Tucker ask why Vladimir Putin has not leaked or shared what Hunter Biden was or was not doing in Ukraine, because here's what I know for sure. The Russians have long had very good sources within the corrupt Ukrainian government. And that means that Moscow's intel services absolutely collected on Hunter Biden and probably Joe, because of course they did. That was their job. They know a lot more than what they have ever released. So maybe Tucker will kick the tires on that story and that will be something interesting to come out. Who knows? But I would like to hear more.